Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode is one part of my hour-long NPR show heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, everything your dog wants you to know, as well as the Cat Bible, everything your cat expects you to know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. Here is a charming book. It's not at all depressing, which I thought, ooh, this could be depressing, but it's the opposite. It's called Good Grief on Loving Pets Here and Hereafter, written by E.B. Bartels, who lives in the Boston area with her husband. And I don't want to ask how many pets. She has had so many pets in her life. E.B., welcome to the show, and congratulations on your first book that obviously was a long time being researched and made and thought through it. It had many other iterations first, didn't it? Yeah, it's um, been almost 10 years exactly in the making. I, well, I mean, I guess I could say it has been uh, 34 years in the making because <laughs> I feel like I, I started my research when I was a kid having all these different pets. That's very um, cute. But yeah, I, so I, um, in the first semester of my MFA program in fall 2012, I started writing, um, just these personal kind of short personal essays about different pets I'd had. And they always inevitably ended with how those pets died. Because if you have pets, you know yes. that pets always die in the end. Um, and a friend of mine was just like, Oh, it'd be kind of cool to see, you know, maybe if you did some research and see how other cultures, you know, mourn their pets or what other people do, because there's no really one standard you know, tradition that right. everyone kind of follows. And I just fell into this rabbit hole of researching all these different amazing things that people do when their pets die to really, to really celebrate them and remember them. And, you know, I think show how much their love has, has meant to them. And that is, it sort of does feel like it was a long time in the making and went down many I would say, you know, warrens and, and pathways and, and little alleys, but rabbit holes good too. Um, Cause <laughs> there, there is, I think a rabbit in it. I can't remember exactly, but anyway, if there, if there wasn't a rabbit, it's the only animal missing because it really is like a, a journey that you took to think, okay, mm -hmm. I had this fish, that hamster. And then of course there's the Guinea pig that you've never quite gotten over. Should we talk about that? Chucky? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because a lot of what I hadn't really anticipated um, when I first started the research was I, I thought I would just be learning about pet cemeteries and mummification and taxidermy. But 
I really started to investigate a lot of the feelings that come along with having yes. pets. And obviously there's joy and love, which is why we have pets. But then there's also a lot of um, guilt or shame or worry and anxiety. And yep. obviously when a pet is aging and, you know, coming to the end of their life, a lot of people feel guilt like, oh, I didn't try everything or I should have been more observant or I, right. I should have been able to do something to stop this thing that unfortunately is inevitable. Um, and with the guinea pig I had, I, I write about that in the book and it was sort of like the first time I came out publicly talking about this, but I had this guinea pig when I was a kid who um, always bit me. I just never connected with him as a pet. And I ended up um, returning him to the pet store. And I was so mortified and ashamed of this because I feel like when you bring an animal into your home, you know, you, you are making this contract with them that you will care for them until the end of your life uh, or well end of their life right. um you know if if you die before your pet that's another whole situation that I do write about in the book as well but um you know I, and I felt it was important to include cuz you know I've I'm not a perfect pet owner I have a horribly hard time training my dog <laughs> like you know I've made mistakes like and you know it's 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 really it's um it's a big deal, I think, to take on another being and say, like, I will care for you until you die. And I think it's really hard for a lot of people to do. Um, so anyway, I thought it was important to include the guinea pig just to show there are lots of different ways Outcomes. that we can try and fail. Yeah. And, and it was but it was very honest and, and came up a lot. And also when you were you were pet sitting Mimi's little creature that wound up dead in the terrarium. When you were little, yeah. I mean, that's another one where, you know, that kind of haunted you and you were just a little kid and this creature just died on its own while you were pet sitting it. Right. Like, I think there's a, there's so much responsibility you feel, I think, with your own pets. Um, but then like when you're dog sitting or pet sitting, like to have the creature that someone else loves and cares for die on your watch is Awful. even more stressful because it's you know you feel like you're letting someone else down you know it's if your own hamster dies while you're you're taking care of them at least like well just you're upset I guess you right know? but right. I, just, I was worried that my friendship was going to be over and luckily Mary is a very understanding person and she is still one of my best friends to this day oh so I had her name wrong yes yeah, sorry no wonder you were wondering who's Mimi I'm terrible at names luckily <laughs> luckily you've got two oh, initials totally EB fine. so that's easy for me no what was great was because you were kids you're like oh my god she's never going to talk to me the friendship's over and you know the next day at lunch she's like what is what's in your lunchbox because you know because kids are more resilient and I guess more accepting you have lots of interesting interviews and that's why I figured it took a long time to do with mm -hmm. a variety of veterinarians end of life veterinarians all of almost all of whom I've had on the show at one time or another lap of love and Susan Cohen the the grief counselor who went from counseling pet loss grief groups to counseling veterinarians for the stress of being a veterinarian you go into that a lot too which is which surprised me. It seemed like, whoa, where she's going here, but it's really relevant. You brought up a lot of these vets and the stress and strain for them of doing humane euthanasia and what it takes out of them. When when you went on on that down that rabbit hole, were you surprised by how deep and, and wide the hole was, so to speak? Yeah. So I, I think I actually interviewed more vets. Well, besides 
pet owners, um, but I interview probably more veterinarians next than, than any other group of people I spoke with for the book. Um, and they had just such a fascinating perspective because, you know, um, one of the vets who I spoke with, um, you know, pointed out that human doctors are not expected to care for patients from birth until death. Right. Um, but, you know, veterinarians, they can, you know, be taking care of a puppy and then take care of that puppy as it becomes a dog and then an elderly dog and eventually even have to euthanize this animal that they've seen through its whole life cycle. And I think that's, that's really hard because you have to balance like not only do vets have to know how to take care of so many different species, but then they also need to balance taking care of different stages in life. And so much of being a vet I learned is trying to figure out how to communicate with the people who love these animals, you know, and that um, a couple of the vets I spoke with all pointed out that a lot of people go into being vets because they like animals more than people. But unfortunately you have to deal with people a lot, especially, often during really hard situations and you have to explain clearly, you know, like, well, we can try this surgery, but it may only extend your dog's life by a month or two, or, you know, there's a chance they won't come out of the anesthesia. And, and you have to have really hard, candid conversations. And also because, I mean, more people have pet insurance now, but often people, you know, are paying fully out of pocket for these services. So vets often have to have really hard conversations. It's like, can you afford a $10,000 surgery, you know? Um, And that does really take a a big drain on, on vets. And so I thought it was important to include, especially because, and I have been guilty of this myself, you know, when you're upset that your animal, you know, has died, it's really easy to look for someone to blame. And I think that vets often get caught in that a lot, unfortunately, of being, you know, you know, oh, well, you know, she didn't try hard enough or she lied to me and said the surgery would fix everything and it didn't. So I I really wanted to make sure the vet perspective was really um, emphasized in my book because, you know, there are there are allies in helping care for our pets. And I think it's important to always remember that. Very important. And the, and the thing that, that that whole section of the book, which is, is quite extensive, brings to mind is that we're so egocentric. We think it's all about us. Well, partly about the yeah. dog or the cat or the gerbil or the ferret, but it's really mostly about us, how we're feeling, how this is going to impact us. And I don't think we, we really step back and say, this is another human being who's as invested in this animal's welfare as I am. Maybe not on a mm-hmm. daily basis, but in the big picture, especially you've been with a vet for yeah. a long time. And we don't acknowledge their pain and suffering at the end of an animal's life while the animal is in pain and suffering. And they have to be part mm-hmm. of the decision. And then they have to perform the euthanasia. And if we're sitting there sobbing and they're supposed to be, what, dry-eyed and stiff yeah. upper lip? And, yeah. okay, next, you know, we, we think of all doctors as being able to create a kind of emotional wall, that that's some trick they teach them in medical school or in veterinary medical school. You know, you can take a step back and don't mind that, well, an oncologist, you know, we all think about human oncologists or veterinary ones. Well, since they're dealing with, you know, imminent death all the time, they must have figured out a way to not have it hurt so much for them or feel so Mm -hmm. bad for them. But who says they can? Who says they signed up for that? You know, they they didn't understand going in that the grief that people feel is a grief that the vet feels too. So I really admire you for including that. And 
with a lot of depth and a lot of different voices. And you do bring up the, the high suicide rate in veterinarians, which a lot of people think, but wait, it's a really great job. I always wanted to be a vet myself. I love animals. But this yeah. is it. It's, there's so much more to it, right? Oh, yeah. It's it's a really hard job. And I, I do not envy vets at all. I'm so grateful for the work they do. But especially, too, like right now, so many people... Um, you know, adopted animals during the pandemic who maybe had never had pets before or hadn't had pets as adults and are, you know, like everyone's just doing the best they can. But like, you know, they maybe don't understand the limits of what a vet can do or they're they're, you know, trying to get used to what that relationship looks like. And, you know, I it's it's a challenging thing, but I, I really, you know, like your point about the ego that goes into pet ownership, which often yeah, it makes you forget that your vet is a person too. All the vets I spoke with are also people who've had pets of their own. And so many of them shared stories about their own pets dying. And then they started crying and then I was crying. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. like, we're all just trying to, you know, get by. And, and I think too, with the ego, it, what's really hard sometimes is often like very, very regularly pet owners I spoke with, you know, when they told me about a pet that died, many people told me that afterwards they really regretted not making the call to euthanize sooner. And they realized that they had been kind of hanging on and letting their animals suffer because they couldn't let go. They were really upset and they, they didn't want to say goodbye. And I think what's really hard is often vets because, you know, they're, they're not with the animal every day and they can have a little more remove. They often notice before, and because it's their job, they right. notice before, you know, we do, you know, your animal's really declining. Your dog is clearly in pain. And, you know, people don't want to hear that, right? So they, they push back and they say, oh, no, no, no. But, like, he was chasing a tennis ball yesterday. It's fine. Right, and or he ate breakfast so today think... or yesterday he wagged his tail or the cat purred. Right. Yeah, I, I, that's yeah. actually a, something I've brought up a lot on the show. I think m- most people um, delay for their own comfort and deny, you know, like forced blindness the kind of suffering their pets going through. And inevitably, they're not just going to, those few people whose pets just wake up dead, so to speak, without having a really, a bunch of bad days before, those are the really rare Mm -hmm. ones. So we can say thank you to those pets for having made the decision for us, but it's really out of their hands too. So that's a really good point you make. So some of the well, the fun things, just to get on a lighter note, some of the fun things you have in the book <laughs> are about the various kinds of taxidermy. I'm like, oh, my God, freeze drying and mummification. And it's crazy. There really are things that have been done. You know, we think, oh, yeah, those crazy Egyptians, everything was mummified and given a tomb. But you've got l- l- people today doing taxidermy in, in, you know, in metropolises. It's pretty interesting. They're pretty they're outliers, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of people I interviewed about what they did when their pets died, either, you know, buried their animal in their backyard or maybe at a pet cemetery or had their pet, you know, cremated and spread the ashes somewhere or they made like a little shrine in their house. Like so many people I know, you know, have photos of maybe the urn with ashes or the old dog collar. Um, But I really loved getting to talk to the people who chose these more unusual methods and the mummification and taxidermy that is happening now is is really interesting and 
Um, you know, one of the, the people I spoke with who she had her Boston Terrier, you know, uh, taxidermy, she said, you know, she knows it's not him anymore. It's, you know, the, <laughs> that was good. Kind of the, the sh- Did she yeah, know? like she doesn't, doesn't think he's going to come back to life, but she thought he was so beautiful and like his fur, like petting his fur gave her comfort and, you know, in some ways, like I began to think more about it, and I was like, "It's kind of like just having a 3D photograph." Like that's funny. You know, that's like, very funny. And and my feeling is like, you know, I definitely, you know, investigated some methods that I don't think I personally will necessarily choose. Like cloning is super expensive and difficult and not always viable. So I don't know if that's on my short list of things I would would try after my dog dies. Right. But, you know, my feeling is that. Whatever helps you grieve, helps you remember your pet, helps you mourn them and celebrate their life. Like as long as you're not hurting yourself or hurting anybody else, I'm like, go for it. Do whatever makes you feel better. And um, it was really cool to see that there's so many amazing taxidermists who are who are willing to preserve your pet. Um, and there are different ways too. There's a, a taxidermist in Joshua Tree, California, named Lauren Kane Lysak, and she does you know, people think, oh, it's just getting like the whole pet's body, you know, stuffed and mounted, but she'll do like a nose cast where you can just get your dog's um, nose, like she'll imprint it in plaster and then make like a little metal sort of sculpture of of your dog's nose. And I just thought that was such a lovely, sweet little way to remember, you know, your pet. So there, there are lots of different options out there. And I I kind of, I personally, when my pets died, always felt very like lost because there's so many, I was like, I don't know what to do. Like I could do anything or nothing. And I wanted this book to almost be like an encyclopedia of like options that you can have when your pet dies. And I think that's exactly what you've done. You've exactly what you've done. (laughs) We've run out of time, but this is a absolutely charming book and a wonderful walk through humankind and and the love and the grief about their pets all kinds of animals good grief on loving pets here and hereafter by eb bartels eb thanks for being here and for spending 10 years getting all this together for the rest of us i hope your dog lives forever take care oh thank you tracy it's been great thank you thanks for listening There are a few more very special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you will support their support of my mission to entertain and educate. Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, is still making natural pet food I feed my own dogs. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and free food for the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. Cradle which makes CBD calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. My Wanda Weimaraner couldn't get through thunderstorms without their cradle melts. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition and makes innovative foods like the hybrid dog food, Wisdom, which sometimes is all that Maisie Hotchner will eat. Evermore Pet Food, which is privately owned by two extraordinary women who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this shorter version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2 and we'll listen to other episodes sometime soon.